Good morning. Good morning. There we go. So there's this celebrated quote. Sometimes it's been misattributed to Nelson Mandela. Actually, it comes from Marianne Williamson, a well-known spiritual advisor. She's a self-help author. And this is a quote that can be found on motivational posters. It can be found in self-improvement seminars. It can be uh, cited commonly. It's, it's beloved. It's often featured as the crescendo of other speeches. Uh, in fact, in the film Coach Carter, where Samuel L. Jackson doesn't swear profusely that one time, um, when the dysfunctional basketball team that he is coaching hit its lowest point, there's this important scene where dramatic music plays and one of the players stands up boldly in front of everybody else and he recites this, court, this, this, this quote. They return to just to academic success. They turn the season around. They make it to the state quarterfinals. And they achieve what their coach tells them is that ever-elusive victory within. They do it because of this quote. Perhaps you've heard of it. The quote goes like this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure it is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. Now, uh, using the basketball theme, um, before I dunk on this quote, I want to point out how it challenges us in some positive ways, not to be limited by uh, self-limiting beliefs, um, not to have a false humility, not to make excuses, because it goes on to say that our playing small does not serve the world. Indeed, I believe that's true. And though it's not a uh, theologically uh, Christian statement, it'll say that as children of God, that when we shine, we can make God's glory known. I, I buy that. All of that is fine. But I want to go back to the crux, to the point of this quote. Believing in yourself, to above all trust in your own self-sufficiency. I want to ask you this. Is this real in your life and in the lives of human beings? Is it true that your deepest fear is that you are afraid that you are so powerful, so powerful that it can't even be measured? Are you afraid, most frightened by the prospect of your own light, of your own personal adequacy? Think about just the common surface level fears that you hear people say. Like, I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of public speaking. I'm afraid of being late. What gives with those things? What's going on in those fears? Aren't we really afraid of being hurt? A failure of being rejected, of not having control? Take, for instance, the anxious father. Deep down, what's going on with that dad? Does he ultimately worry that he has so much power at the end of the day? Or does he feel powerless that maybe he hasn't been a perfect example. Maybe he has not equipped his kids for the cruelties of the world. Or what about a woman struggling with an eating disorder? Deep down in the recesses of her heart, is she afraid that she's actually perfect and beautiful? Or does she have a different haunt deep within? 
You see, it's finite people who know will die, who live with regret, who have worry factories called brains. Do we really fear that all that we need, all the resources for life, the wisdom, the creativity, uh, the, the, the beauty, the stick with itness, however you want to describe it, all those resources come from within? Or does the concept of self-sufficiency, which I think is actually more of wishful thinking, maybe a hope, does that concept perhaps create more problems, more pressure than it would solve in the first place? What do we make of self-sufficiency? So good morning again. My name is Justin, a pastor here at RIV, and we're continuing, I believe it's the seventh installment in our series we're calling Cruciformed, where we are exploring what it means to have lives that are shaped by the cross of Christ. Now, that's weird to, to say, like, I would have a cross-shaped life, or you would have a cross-shaped life, because you think about this, we're always being shaped. We're always being shaped by something or someone. The question is just what? What ideology, what people, what persons, what circumstances, what is shaping us? But if you think about the cross, this is a Roman instrument of death and punishment Yet Christians also believe this is a thing that is instrumental to life and salvation. So death and life, glory and grace, all at the same time being bound up in our lives. So before we jump into the text for today... I want to look at where we recently have came from just to help us work up speed and to have some context. This is back in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Paul gets done thanking God for Christ's victory over our enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And he says this, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He said, God through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him, the scent of him, in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to others, the aroma of life leading to life. He's saying because the Spirit of God, because He, the Holy Spirit, is inside of us, we're going to smell like Jesus. We're going to put off that aroma to those that are saving and perishing alike. And so it's kind of like if you've ever stood next to a campfire for a while and then you've changed your, your setting, like you, you smell like the campfire, right? Some people smell that smell and they're like, oh, you smell smoky and oh, you make me want to cough. Others, it's nostalgic. They're like, oh, I wish I was out there roasting marshmallows with you. It's, I'm nostalgic. I want to be there. Some love it. Some hate it. Here's the thing about the message that we preach, about the theology that we hold. The message comes through messengers. So people are going to experience the message through the messengers, through the people. Some are going to love it. Some are going to hate it. Some are going to accept it. Some are going to reject it. And there is something that happens to the people who are carrying that message that are caught up in it. Life and death is going to be happening at the same time. So Paul, he has opponents. He had outer dangers and stress and hardship, things that were happening in his life. But simultaneously, we see these flashes of calm and peace and purpose and resolve. Stuff that didn't come from Paul. Reminds me a bit from a lesser known MLK quote that challenges our, our concept of self-sufficiency. Martin Luther King Jr., who had 
tremendous challenges and also had tremendous boldness, life and death caught up at the same time. He said this, in the midst of outer dangers, I have felt an inner calm and known resources of strength that only God could give. In many instances, I have felt the power of God transforming the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. Now for you, when things get dicey, when you gulp, when you are losing sleep, when you feel tapped out, when you are despairing of life, can you say that at the same time you have inner calm, transforming power welling up in you, death and life happening at the same time? So continuing Paul's thought here, he says that we have a huge task. A huge task, and he asks this question in verse 16. He said, who is adequate for these things? To be the aroma of the, the both and. Some people are going to love it and accept it. Other people are going to trash us, reject us. Who is adequate? Now, the word there can also be translated sufficient. Other translations will say that, or competent, qualified, or worthy. It's the same thing. So hang on to adequate or sufficient. We'll come back to it in a bit. Who is adequate to spread Christ? God himself from place to place. He's really asking, is any person apart from Jesus self-sufficient? Now, his audience obviously is going to hear this in a rhetorical way. They're expecting, well, well, no one. That's the obvious answer. No one is supposed to be up to this task from their own resources, from their own abilities in the fall. That's, that's not going to happen. No one is up to the task of gospel ministry. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to work out an explanation to this rhetorical question, and then he's going to actually subtly address his critics for the sake of his audience. Jump into our text for today, 2 Corinthians 3, pick it up at verse 1. My heading says, living letters. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Now, Paul's not being defensive here, but make no mistake, he is, in a sense, defending himself. He's defending his spiritual authority, that he is, in fact, credible despite the hardship. Despite the critics, he's known shipwreck and poverty, burdens, distress beyond his strength. He has suffered severe abuse. Slanderous critics, people who didn't like him, they didn't like his message. They were saying he wasn't a real apostle. They were pointing out, you're not even carrying with you letters of recommendation, which was a very big deal. Back then, it was a way of proving your credential, that you were commissioned, that you had the support of the established leaders. And so in order to reject Paul and really what he was saying about grace and grace alone, they, they would shoot the messenger. You ever seen that? Right? Uh, if somebody can't win the argument, you, you can't defeat the message. So what do you do? You shoot the messenger. And in, in logic, the nerds would say that this is an ad hominem attack. Attack the man. Dismiss the man so you can dismiss the message. If you can discredit the person, you don't have to deal with the message. You ever seen this? You ever felt this? You ever done this? So they would bark. 
People do this. We bark. We bark about perceived or actual sin uh, with Paul. His communication ability became suspect. They would twist some of his words. You know, it's kind of like, so what you're saying is, you ever seen that move? When they completely twist what you're saying, you're like, that's not what I was saying. You just twisted it, right? And so what you have here in Corinth, though, is a young fledgling church, and they could be swayed by controversy, by drama, by these dispersions, by these critics and criticisms that they heard about their key leader, Paul, and then he was maybe the watershed on other things that could follow or happen. It would threaten to undermine not only their trust in their key leader, but their belief in the message and their ability to be messengers. So Paul is not passive. For the sake of their faith, their obedience, and their confidence, Paul responds. Verse 3. He said, you show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is saying, look, I don't need external affirmation. The proof of legitimate ministry, it's, it's in the pudding. It's, it's y'all. <laughs> you have radical life transformation. That doesn't just happen. Whenever sinners repent, whenever sinners grow and we sanctify, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people. He does what no person can do. It's not a trend. So I don't need a customary letter of wreck. I've got something better. I've got people. I've got living letters. Think about Corinth, okay? Ancient Greek pagan culture was crazy, absolutely crazy. It makes Vegas on a Saturday night look like Sunday school, okay? I could, I could go into pan worship and all this other stuff, and like, seriously, college kids at spring break, those ancient Greeks would look back and be like, amateurs, you are amateurs, and in that setting, the gospel comes in and a congregation is formed where there previously was no congregation. Like the most godless place, God's like, yep, I'm going to do the thing. And the thing was happening. And it wasn't that you just had a church. You had changed hearts. You had maturing lives. This was evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. Only his miraculous intervention changes people inside and out permanently. So to suggest that they needed a letter of recommendation, which you could write about any place, even if the person wasn't really doing what they were supposed to, even if they were a fraud, they could still have a letter. But the proof's in the pudding. And to say that you would need more is an insult to what God had been doing. The Corinthians themselves, they were evidence of Paul's apostolic status and new covenant ministry. So we heard about the new covenant in the, in the scripture reading. What is the new covenant? We're going to talk about this in the next few weeks. Uh, so let's put it in park for a second and let's talk about the new covenant. Okay, we're going we're gonna to unpack this more next week. But for, for this week, to make sense, we, we have to lean in a bit. First of all, what's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. It's a pact. It's a promise. It's something we take very, very seriously. There's multiple parties involved that come together. And, and so the Bible essentially says that there are two main 
covenants. First, we have the old covenant. This came in via Moses. You get the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19 and 20, and then the, the law goes on. You get more rules and regulations, and it requires strict obedience to the Mosaic law, something no person could uphold by themselves. And so while this covenant was good, it had a weakness. The weakness was that it could not transform the hearts of the people that were in the covenant. Couldn't change their hearts. It couldn't make them truly, genuinely love God. It couldn't make them being sinful, lovable to God. And though it made provisions, temporary offerings for sin, the spiritually dead people remained that way. They were helplessly stuck in the guilt that they had. And so we see in Moses and Jeremiah and others speak to another, a new covenant where God would change the paradigm, where he would bring about inner renewal, not just outward obedience, but inner renewal. And he would offer complete forgiveness. One such example came about 600 years or so before Jesus. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. And this is what he says to the people of the people about the people when the new covenant rolls out. He says this, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you more laws and rules. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of stone is one that isn't going to change. It's stubborn. It's stiff-necked. It's self-righteous. It's rigid. It won't admit when it's wrong. It's drunk on its own rationalizations. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, the way it was supposed to be, beating, living, soft, and responsive. Why? I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Now, Christians know that Jesus is the mediator of this covenant. He's the go-between. He's the one who makes it happen, who brings the parties together. His death on the cross would be the basis for it. And the promise here is that God will forgive sin, that he will dwell inside of his people, and he changes things. And so to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, means we operate in that covenant. We're ministers of the new covenant to bring more people into that covenant in the way that God wants to deal and relate with people. So being a quote-unquote new covenant minister is about the gospel of grace, being a messenger for that. What Paul was up to, this was Paul's task this was the task for the Corinthians, and this is also our task as well, new covenant ministry. Okay, out of park. Jump into verse 4. So Paul says, such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Now, I want to point out again, the Greek words, for competent and adequacy, sufficiency, they all are basically the same thing. They, they share the same root, just said slightly differently. Other translations might things, say things like uh, fitness or qualification or capability. And what he is saying, despite the outer dangers and the hardships, the naysayers, the doubts, a checkered past, I am confident. My crew, we are still confident. And we're not just confident. And by the way, we don't have an unearned confidence. There's a lot of people that are confident and, and, and they're terrible <laughs> at something just because they have no other reference point. 
right? I mean, like every cringy, like early season of the, the talent shows, right? Where they're like, I'm going to be a star. And then they go and they embarrass themselves in front of Simon Cowell, right? It's not that kind of confidence. It's not like tone deaf confidence. <laughs> he says, we are not confident, but we are also competent. We are sufficient. Now recall a moment ago, chapter two, verse 16. He says, who is adequate? Who is sufficient? the death and life work of spreading Christ wherever we go. Remember how the rhetorical answer is supposed to be no one? And then now Paul is saying, well, we actually are adequate. So what gives, Paul? Are you contradicting yourself about who is competent for ministry? No, Paul is saying what we have is vicarious. It came from not from within, but from without. God's adequacy makes us adequate. God's sufficiency makes us sufficient. So I think as Christians, we need to be careful how we examine our doubts and how we examine our own issues. Sometimes we think about them and we take them way too seriously, maybe more seriously than we take God himself. Now, we, we all do have reasons to be unfit and unqualified. We do have areas we need to grow in, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but we, we often don't see a healthy view of this with Christians. Certainly not on uh, the Christian brags on social media, right? And you're like, I got a latte. Thank Jesus for everything. Like, no, that's, that's, a, that's a Christian form of virtue signaling, and we see through it. But when we're honest, a lot of us Christians... Guy in the mirror included, we feel like I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I've got compromises, the, the, the thought that I just thought, ooh. My motives, right? We, when we are honest, ugly stuff is there. Some of us feel unskilled. Some of us, it's the baggage from our past. We feel like I come from the wrong culture. I have the wrong personality traits. My wiring isn't Right. I am of the wrong age or of the wrong generation. My circumstances are too bad. My challenges are too big. But the thing is, there's always been one only way that God deals with people, is he deals with them when they're inadequate. Bible examples. Moses thought that he had inadequate abilities. Exodus 4, God's like, hey, you're going to be my man to do the thing. And he's like, no, <laughs> I have a, a, a slowness of speech and tongue. And then I've got this anger management issue. I just struck someone down. Um, that's the person. And God says, do you know who's talking to you? Do you realize who made the tongue? And Moses still says, yeah, but. And graciously, instead of just squashing him, God says, okay, I'll give you Aaron. Aaron will be your mouthpiece. Dynamic duo, there you go. What about Gideon? He had these successes, right? But we forget he was very outnumbered militarily. Judges 6, not me. Mm -mm. God, uh, this is clearly a not it. He says, how can I save my people? I am the least in my father's house. And he's just doing some rudimentary math. He's just like, uh, less, more. More bigger than less. That's the person, but God. God's like, um, but I will be with you. You will strike down the Midianites as if it was just one man. 
Jeremiah thought he was too young. Ezekiel was super timid. But God, what about Isaiah? He felt inadequate because he was aware of his sin. He felt too dirty and too contaminated. This is a huge, huge theme in his writing and in his ministry. Isaiah 6 records this powerful scene. He gets this vision of the Lord seated on the heavenly throne. High and exalted, the train of his robe is throughout the temple. There's smoke. The foundations are shaking. Angels are crying out, holy, 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 holy is the Lord. They won't even look at God. They are covering their faces. Isaiah sees that. He sees the holiness of God. And here's the thing about holy. Holy isn't just morally good. It's that, but it's so much more. It is other. It is separate. It is unapproachable light. It is sin blasting. It is so other. He sees that. Here's his response. Woe is me for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. He's saying you can't use me. I am inadequate. I live among a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. He is intimidated. He feels morally inadequate. You see, Isaiah isn't really afraid deep down of his own light. That he is so powerful, it can't be measured. He's afraid of someone else who fits that bill. Deep down, his greatest fear, and any human that can get sober in their thinking for a moment, has a fear because eternity is in our heart. That we might have to stand sinful and inadequate in the face of a holy God. Naked. Nothing to cover us. That's not the moment where you're cocky. That's an insufficient person. But God... But God, God graciously sends one of the seraphim to Isaiah, takes a coal. It touches his lips that he just said were unclean, and it burns off the moral filth. It atones for his sin. And once God solves the sin problem, it changes everything for Isaiah. He has a different tune. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? He's saying, who will be my messenger? Remember, Isaiah is just like, not it, not me, okay? Then he said, here I am, send me. I'm up for it. Use me, I'm ready. Like the Apostle Paul, God's sufficiency overcame Isaiah's insufficiency, making him a confident and competent minister. And this is really something that smacks the heart of the gospel, that God makes the insufficient sufficient. Uh, we can't uh, achieve that ever-elusive victory within, so says the gospel, but we can receive it. We can receive it vicariously from Jesus. So Paul here is rejecting the notion that we can accomplish without God anything other than our sin. Grace can do incredible things through and despite us. Just think about it for a moment. If we really believe that people are sinful, that people are inadequate, that we are not perfect. That means all forms of self-righteousness is false righteousness. And you know that anecdotally from your own experience. You've been around someone and they are self-righteous. They're self-assured. You know how insufferable and pathetic and irritating that is. 
How do you think a holy God thinks of that? Self-righteousness and self-sufficiency is damned. That's not a cuss. That's a theological truth. It is damned before a holy God. Think about it like this uh, for you visual thinkers. Okay? Bible essentially says that we are like vessels. We are like pots or, 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 or maybe, a, maybe a vase, if you will. And as long as we are full of us, we're of no good use. Uh, this past week, uh, Valentine's Day, I remembered, I bought my wife a bouquet of roses, and it came with a vase. Now, just for the sake of weird argument, just assume that that vase was full of itself. Vase-shaped, but full of itself. Just a solid hunk of glass. That would allow no room for it to serve its purpose. But a good vase, a hollow vase, has room for the flowers, for the water, for the plant food that keeps the otherwise dying roses alive. That's supposed to be us. So cruciformed lives are supposed to rethink our sufficiency. Because Paul's saying, Our sufficiency, which we actually do have, comes from the sufficient one. It's a confidence through Christ. It's a competency through Christ. We're not full of ourselves. His spirit is now in us, and now we can do the thing because he is the thing for us. So here's Paul giving a rebuttal to his critics. Not because he needs to defend himself, but because he doesn't want them taken seriously. This is his encouragement to the people of Corinth. Verse 6. He's clarifying, he, God, he has made us competent to be ministers of this new covenant. Not of the letter, not of the letter of the Mosaic law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Why? How? How does this happen? Well, as we mentioned, the new covenant comes in and it removes a heart of stone and it gives us a heart of flesh. It puts the spirit of God inside of us so you're not just the the flesh. You're not just the sin nature. You have two things happening now at once. You can be alive and empowered and you can sanctify and you can grow. You have transforming power to make you want to obey. And then the courage and the conscience and the conviction to admit, I don't always obey. You can then truly repent and you don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to be defensive. You can then repent and receive grace, and the gospel becomes new to you day after day after day. So you don't have to get sick of the gospel. It becomes your lifeline. It's it's the living water. It's not the stagnant water that you had that one time long ago. It's something that's new to you then and now and forevermore. So those are our six verses from the passage I was assigned. Um, If you pay attention, there's not a command. There's not like you need to do this or do that, okay? So what are some implications that will practically intersect with our own lives? I have three for you and then a parting thought. Implication number one, your insufficiency is God's canvas. It's the medium that God will use to display his own power. Artists paint their masterpieces on something. He needs a place where he's going to do his work. And he chooses that to be people. It's by his own design and intention, not by his accident, that he uses flawed people. 
There are no other arrangements that are possible. Oswald Chambers puts it like this. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or by the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they denounced their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. God flatly rejects self-sufficiency. Old Testament and new, he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God is not uh, sitting around chewing his fingernails off saying, oh my gosh, I need to find talented people or else I need special people. I need gifted people. I need, I need the good ones or else that's not what he's doing. He's looking for weak in, and inadequate people, or at least people that won't trust the gifts that they know ultimately come from him anyways to pour out his power and his sufficiency. God doesn't share his glory. So think about it like this. Um, in tech terms, um, we could say that our, our insufficiency um, isn't a, a bug. It's a feature. It's not, a, it's not a bug in the program. It's a feature of the program. Our insufficiencies, our issues, they are essential parts of the call. They're the basis for God's work. And for those of us who have been following Christ for a moment, don't we know that that plays a little bit better when you're talking with people, right? Somebody uh, is, is, is interacting with the Christian, and the Christian's like, look, I've arrived, and I'm smart, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm wonderful, and, and God loves me, and I've never, I've like basically never sinned, or I had those like the little Christian sin. People resent that. That's not them hating Christianity. That's them hating our pretense and our delusion. But the kind of people that set people at ease and put their guards down are like, man, I am, ooh, I am a mess. And you should have saw me freshman year in college. I was a mess. And you should have saw me on Tuesday. I was a mess. And I'll probably be a mess in so many other situations. Oh my, I'm a mess. But I know a guy. That's the kind of stuff, that kind of humility allows them to put the guard down, that they don't have to be self-righteous. They don't have to be full of themselves. So know that your insufficiency is God's canvas. Secondly, um, serve. Serve. Uh, when, when Paul says God has made us competent to be ministers, that word minister is basically servant. Servant. Minister is not this licensed class of professional uh, missionary or clergy or people who do foreign work over there. Every member of the body of Christ is a minister, is supposed to be a missionary. The only rule is like, are we a faithful one? <laughs> are, are, we, are we doing the thing or are we not doing the thing? Really, that's, that's what it is. If you're a Christian, you check the box, get after it. Ephesians 4, another place, Paul says, grace was given to each one of us. And, and when he says us, that's one of those times in the Bible where he's actually speaking of individuals. He doesn't just have a, a corporate congregation in mind. 
each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, that's the scripture, when he ascended on high, he took captives captive and he gave gifts to people. Verse 11 He's going to say there's different roles and different offices that individuals occupy. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to enumerate some of the specific gifts that exist. We have gifts. Why? In order to, verse 12, he picks up two, in order to equip the saints, that is all Christians, you are saints, you are saints, congratulations, you're a saint, there you go, you're a saint, I don't know if you'll get a sculpture, but you are a saint, to equip the saints for the work of Ministry, the work of servanthood, to do what? To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity. We need unity, right? Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. You think of someone who's like of good stature to do a thing. Like have you ever been to a professional uh, sports situation and you've seen like in person, like that is a starting um, tight end. That is a starting defensive end. Like that's a good stature, right? Like me, you look at me and you're like, you, you played defensive end in the NFL, right? I'm like, yes, I did often mistake, often mistake. And I have to tell people, look, this was, this is natural. No steroids remain seated. I know that's hard to believe, but you think about the stature of Christ spiritually like Jesus, he's saying we can grow into a stature measured by the fullness of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to think about whether or not you serve. Because when you serve, guess what that will do? That will empty you. But that also has a way of emptying you of you. So are you being filled back up with Jesus? So maybe this means we need to do some surgery on our schedule that we could volunteer in our community. Wider community. What needs do, do your neighbors, your roommates, your friends have? What burdens are they carrying that if you were slowed down a little bit more and if you were present and you prayed for them and you thought about them, you, you could be wind in their sails. Um, we, we get those tear-offs when we do the offering. Riv could use your help on weekend teams, Riv kids, uh, welcome uh, coffee, etc. We could really use you. There's kind of this saying, the 80-20 rule, that um, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Sometimes in church, it becomes like the 90-10 rule, that 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. We could use your help because the rest of us are inadequate. We need one another to be built up into the stature, the fullness of Christ. So let's serve. Let's, let's not hide behind our weaknesses and our excuses and let, let them uh, be things that kneecap our ability to serve the gifts that we do have. Let's be that living letter and let our lives spell out what no letter of wreck could say. Let's serve. Number three, be confident. Be confident. Not arrogant, not ashamed, but be confident despite our real insufficiencies, our baggage, our critics that are sometimes right. Sometimes they're just mean. Besides our flaws, our personality quirks, our outer dangers, our inner turmoils, let's know that God is greater. 
that his strength outweighs our weakness, that his light outshines our darkness. We are beloved children of the king, empowered by a life-giving spirit. We should be confident. So this morning, I, I don't know about what's happening in between your ears and what's happening in your heart right now. I don't know what you need to lean into, but I want to encourage you to, to take one of these things seriously. Maybe you need to rethink your sufficiency. We need to be honest about our flaws. We need to think rightly about them. Some of us, and this might be more of the, the young or the spiritually young, sometimes we, we, we don't think our flaws are that big of a deal. Sometimes we do need to take them seriously. And I think here's one way to test. I was thinking about this morning that you, that you take yourself too seriously is the presence of worry in your life. I got to do it. I got to take care of it. I got to get it done. I, I got to get there. I got I to do it. That's a symptom of trusting yourself too much. That's weight on your shoulders. And I think one of the practical things robust faith can do is it can take the pressure off of our shoulders, the hope on ourselves that is misplaced, and it can place it on God's strong shoulders so that he alone can carry that burden. Rethink sufficiency. Some of us, we need to serve. Being a consumer of church, being a consumer of our community makes us more full of us. Even if it's spiritual stuff, it, it can be spiritual stuff that's just about us and we're just self-fed and we're, we're not really spiritually fit. So serve. Think about serving in some way if you're not. Finally, we, we need to be confident and then we need to be rightly confident. We need to take God at his word, what he says about the Spirit's enablement, that he will do great things, greater things. That's what Jesus said, through us. Why? So let's not block our own shots. Let's get involved in new covenant ministry. And maybe you're here today and you're like, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with that list at all. And maybe that's because you're not sure if you're on team Jesus in the first place. Maybe you're like, I like some of the vibes. I'm not sure uh, what, what to do. Maybe convert? Seriously, they just, maybe you just need to convert. You need to own up to the reality that you're not self-sufficient. You, you've got that tiring burden that, that you've tried to be sufficient on your own. That's tiring. That's unachievable. Admit that you have darkness. Admit that you do not have power beyond measure. Like, that's really actually a pretty low bar. <laughs> Admit that. Jesus will save you from your sin precisely because Jesus saves you from yourself. That's the kind of Savior that we have. Believe that he alone is sufficient, that he died, he rose again to make you clean and holy before a God who is sufficient. And his spirit comes in, regenerates a dead soul, starts the whole thing over again. So I want to leave you with Paul's prayer for spiritual power in Ephesians 3. And as I read this, I want you to pay attention and to connect how God's sufficiency interacts with the believer and makes that person competent and sufficient. Paul says, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you 
being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able, because we have a God who is able. When we are not able, he is able. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we, we call you able. We call you a living God because that's what you are. God, I, I ask that you would just help us through your gracious and merciful spirit that we will make more of you than we do our shortcomings, our critics, our issues, our, uh, our woes, our experiences, God. We thank you so much that you use broken pottery to, 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 to spill your love, that you use uh, not a raging fire, but a smoldering wick to put out your, your aroma to the world around us. Give us grace that comes only through you. Lord, help us to, to know that our inadequacy is your canvas. Help us to be people who serve because you first served us. Help us to love you and to have confidence that comes from you. In your strong and saving name, amen.